Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for the Bible gig. I am that geek. Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price. Postmodern deconstruct superpowered demigod. Let's take a crack at a new episode of The Bible Geek. Not guaranteeing it will make any sense, but if we're lucky, it might. Uh, let's see, let's see. I think we can get a few questions in. Um, this from Norm the Illustrious. I'm working my way through Raymond Brown's introduction to the New Testament. One thing that is really striking to me is how Brown tightly integrates the narratives in Acts with the material in the Pauline and Deuteropauline epistles. I'm used to thinking of Acts as completely historically unreliable, basically a fictional narrative totally made up from whole cloth with no basis in history. Do you think the author of Acts had a copy of the Pauline and Deuteropauline epistles in hand and in turn used the copy? of, uh, sorry, used the scant biographical information in those epistles to help him craft stories in his, his pseudo-historical narrative so Acts would match the already extant letters. That would explain why the stories in Acts match the detail in the letters. Or do you think it is more likely that there are kernels of historical truth in Acts? There might be some uh, grains of truth behind the stories and traditions that made their way in there, uh, but uh, they may be pretty far distant, like Simon Magus uh, being another version of Paul, which, of course, it does not say, but you can kind of deduce that, as F.C. Bauer did. For a long time, I held the same view of Acts and the epistles as uh, I read in um, Dennis R. MacDonald's great book, the Legend and the Apostle, The Battle for Paul in Story and Canon, in which he is uh, examining the coincident material in the Acts of Paul on the one hand and the pastoral epistles on the other. And he argues that it looks like they're both putting their spin on common many times told stories of Paul from different standpoints. The Acts of Paul is an encratite work the the pastoral epistles are anti-Encratite, so they're putting a different spin on the same stories with certain common names and places and so forth. I think he's right on that, and I used to think that that's the way it was with the canonical Acts and the, uh, the Pauline epistles, whichever ones they really are, uh, that it was just that sometimes they overlapped based on legends or recollections or whatever. And that's still, uh, I still think that's viable, but Richard I. Pervo has made a very good case uh, for uh, considering the parallels to the epistles in the book of Acts as a result of the author of Acts consulting the epistles. Uh, And that, that like the Paul getting lowered over the wall, uh, 
to escape the uh, FBI agents from uh, King Aretas the Fourth of Nabatea and some other stuff. It it, it does kind of look like the author of Acts has uh, taken that stuff from those sources and worked it into different contexts and and so forth. Uh, it's uh, it's impossible to say, but I think Pervo has uh, done a pretty good job of that. He's, he did the Hermeneia commentary on Acts, the new one, and some other interesting works from Polbridge Press and Fortress on uh, the book of Acts. The guy's brilliant, and uh, I'd, uh, I would refer you to him. Uh, David Shipley says, I recently read the Prolegomena to the history of Israel by Julius Wellhausen and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I'm taking a rabbinic studies class at the University of Washington, and when I mentioned reading Wellhausen, uh, my professor suggested his opinions, while correct on the sources of the Old Testament, you know, J-E-D-P, etc., were in other areas considered generally anti-Semitic as he portrayed Judaism being practically decayed and dead before the Second Temple destruction and claimed Jesus saved everything with his appearance. I have to say I don't remember getting that impression in the prologue does Wellhausen have a more colored reputation and opinion in other books of his that you know of? Uh, I'm guessing he says this in his book on the Pharisees and Sadducees and in some of his untranslated gospel commentaries. But this was pretty common at the time. Harnack is pretty severe on uh, the mummery of... Uh, oh, no, that's he's talking about orthodoxy, which he blasts, uh, Christian orthodoxy. But he, he thinks Judaism was pretty moribund. Schleiermacher thought so. Uh, these guys were Christians, though, of a critical type. Uh, and uh, I think they did not... Well, I know that they did not yet know what we know now that the idea that Orthodox Judaism, Mishnaic Judaism, Rabbinical Judaism, was not the same as Pharisaic Judaism of, of uh, the New Testament period. Uh, there are various reasons why people have always thought so, but it's basically the Jewish version of Christians reading Catholicism or Lutheranism or whatever back into the Gospels. It's really anachronistic. Uh, and everybody used to, to do that. Uh, Orthodox Jews, fundamentalists like uh, Alfred Adersheim, and uh, at least he was conservative, and, and others all thought that. And uh, in Wellhausen's day, they must have. So you can see where they were uh, they were coming from. This seemed arid, nitpicking, hair-splitting um, scholasticism of the same sort. These same guys would lambaste in connection with medieval Catholicism. Now, it turns out, again, that uh, they were wrong in that uh, Judaism hadn't come to that point. I'd say they were also wrong in that they were looking at it from the outside. In fact, it was almost a kind of a duplicate of the problem with asking Gentiles to convert to um, the Torah if they were to become Christians. This was it would involve such a major Orient, reorientation that it gave rise to this idea that the law was a burden that were that Christ relieves us of. Of course, Jewish Christians didn't think that. They thought the Torah was a gift from God. Jews didn't think of it that way. But Gentile Christians, whom some were requiring to convert to Judaism to keep all those laws, ceremonial laws, in order to be Christians, uh, they said, holy mackerel, this is a burden. And then they are the Pauline-type gospel. Well, you don't have to do that. Oh, okay, Christ has freed us would be 
pagan converts to Christianity from the prospect of having to adopt these alien cultural mores. Uh, so, um, in a way, that's kind of what these Christian theologians and critics were doing when they viewed Judaism. It seemed to them moribund and uh, just crazy stuff. And uh, I can, you can see how. That doesn't make them anti-Semitic. They just were not beneficiaries of later insights yet. Plus, I think they had every right to uh, venture an opinion uh, on, on a form of religion that they found repulsive. Like, uh, I, uh, despite the politically correct lunatics today, I think uh, anybody has the right to look at certain types of Islam and say, that's a false religion. Uh, that uh, either, you know, I, I like this aspect of Islam, I think that one's destructive. You're not an Islamophobe if you voice an informed opinion about it. You can't just go into into these discussions with a Pollyanna-ish everybody view that everybody's right about everything. Yippee! It's absurd. You're not thinking logically. Uh, so I I wouldn't say Velhausen was anti-Semitic. I mean, we know what Christian anti-Semitism looks like. Look at Martin Luther. You don't have anything like that in there. So uh, I, I uh, just reject that kind of nonsense. Uh, he's not an anti, he wasn't an anti-Semite and his works are not infected by it. You just have to, just like well, some of his historical judgments turn out not to be uh, correct in, in light of new knowledge. Uh, like I think he, he had much too much um, confidence in what reliability he saw historically in the Old Testament. He didn't know about uh, minimalism and the factors that led to it. That doesn't mean his work is worthless. Of course, I'm sorry, your professor's not saying it's worthless, but I don't think that tires him with some kind of terrible brush. Commander Scott, he says, do you consider uh, terrorism an ancient phenomenon, specifically one with biblical precedent. If so, would you distinguish it from the kind of uh, terrorism we are seeing today from so-called radical Islamic sectors? So-called? Uh, well, at any rate, uh, there's a press. There are precedents for it. I know. Uh, Listeners may think immediately of the terrible genocidal massacres in the book of Joshua, but that's all fiction. Nonetheless, uh, it must have seemed plausible to ancient readers from the kind of thing they did know of in their day. So I don't know how much of that happened, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Still, I can't point to data. We know that uh, in the time of the Herods, there were... Sicarii, the dagger men, a group of zealot assassins who would uh, insinuate themselves into a crowd uh, when uh, the the officials were passing by and would uh, they had a dagger literally up their sleeve and would take it out, stab uh, whoever the Herodian or other aristocrat was, and then feign outrage and yelling and panic like everybody else in the crowd and then slip away undetected. That's, uh, you know, that's assassination in public. It's kind of a terroristic thing. I don't think we have, uh, in the nature of the case, incidents of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but uh, th there was this kind of uh, bloody violence for political and religious reasons. And uh, the, a, better, a better case would be in the uh, 
In the uh, probably legendary biographies of the Prophet Muhammad, we're told that he violated the sacred month of truce when all of the tribes would swear off uh, praying upon each other to go to Mecca uh, for the pilgrimage, already pre-Islamic. Uh, he violated that and attacked uh, a Quraysh caravan. Uh, well, that's like Khomeini uh, overthrowing international law by taking the, our uh, embassy people hostage. As I, it's hard to say. I think there were precedents, but kind of dim ones, and yet on the same trajectory. I, I would recommend a book. I've for, I don't know the author. I haven't read it, so it hasn't stuck in my mind, but I, I got a copy of a book called Jesus the Terrorist, which would certainly go into that. I would suggest that. Uh, it's on Amazon. I guess I got mine there. Jesus the Terrorist. Oh, let's see. This is from Justin White. I've been slowly working my way through the Hebrew Goddess by Raphael Patai. Uh, um, I've been thinking about the nature of multiple persons in God in both Christianity and Judaism. I'm listening right now to a Bible Geek episode where you're talking about Jesus as a created being and as the manifestation of Chokhmah, Hebrew divine wisdom. This seems to me completely consistent with later Jewish mystical views about the four parts of God manifested as father, mother, son, daughter. The matronate figure makes sense to me as an analog to the role that Jesus takes in being a manifestation of wisdom. One could even use the verse in Malachi 4 concerning the son, S-U-N, of righteousness to argue for either manifestation. My question is, with Jesus taking the role of Sophia, what is the need for the Holy Spirit, and why does it become part of the Godhead? I can understand creating a Holy Spirit much later uh, due to a need for the paraclete to appear, but doesn't the Holy Spirit appear in Scripture too early for that process to take place? Uh, there are a couple of factors here. Very good question. As Hermann Gunkel shows in his book, the influence of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, etc., uh, seems not to be a person, but rather simply the medium for the activity, uh, the communication, and the presence of God. And uh, Samson gets superhuman strength when the when the spirit falls upon him. The prophets speak the words of God when the spirit comes upon them. Even in the book of Acts, you still have this. It's the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God. It doesn't seem like he's an extra person. It's just the, the medium, analogous to angels carrying messages. Um, and uh, in the same way, you have the Shekinah of God, the angels of God, and so forth. Now, there was, uh, I think, originally in some of these stories, like the angel of Yahweh especially, was simply God himself showing up as he did to Abraham's campfire and so on. But uh, in under the influence of the Deuteronomic theology, God became looked at more abstractly and transcendently so that they could no longer imagine that it was Jehovah himself uh, creating Adam out of the clay of the ground in Eden. It, it wasn't Jehovah himself inscribing the tables of the law with his fingernail uh, and that kind of thing, right? God was high and lifted up um, 
the Deuteronomic addition to the uh, dedicatory prayer of Solomon in the temple. He says, the, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this, t- t- this house I've built. So what was in the temple? Well, they said, okay, God isn't literally there. He can't be located. Um, it's his name that he's caused to dwell there. Uh, who appeared in the burning bush? Later on, the Bible says his angel appeared there. Uh, who gave the Torah? It was angels. It was their finger and all of this. Uh, and so you had a retreat into theological equivocation. On the one hand, you wanted to save the appearances, right? You wanted to say that those things God is said to have done in the Old Testament, oh, he really did, but it wasn't exactly God himself. It wasn't somebody else, but it wasn't exactly Jehovah. Uh, and uh, therefore, it was the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the name of God, uh, the finger of God, the angels, etc. Why not just go right to the source, eliminate the middleman, and say, well, God did this, and uh, not have the finger, not mention the angels? Well, because it was too late for that. The, the most they could do was to tinker with the stories, and this meant that uh, you've got to have these mediators between the high God, Jehovah, and us pipsqueaks. Uh, well, okay, uh, this is the ground from which the Trinity s- would sprout later, because uh, Jesus Christ is the Logos. Huh. Does that mean he is the same divine nature as the Father? Uh, the Arians said no, the Athanasians said yes, because they wanted to stay monotheistic, and yet they wanted to give Jesus true divine dignity. So they said, okay, the Logos, the Son of God, he's not the Father, uh, but he, he's not something other than God either. So he's a, a kind of divine hypostasis. And again, this is, had already begun with the Deuteronomic uh, theologians and with Philo in, in the first century A.D., Uh, You see what's going on here. Uh, You're safeguarding the transcendence of God, assigning things he did to subordinates, uh, yet you you can't deny that God did them, so somehow these things were pseudopods of the divine amoeba. Somehow these were the hands, the extensions of God. Uh, Since some of them uh, have personalistic language, uh, then uh, you wind up hypostatizing them. They're kind of persons, they're semi-autonomous, and yet they share the divine nature. Uh, That's not a Christian departure from Hellenistic Jewish thinking. It's a direct continuation from it. And the Holy Spirit came into that mix the same way. Now, I think the Trinity really starts, uh, it's on the way with Tertullian and, and so forth, but it really starts with Athanasius. Once it's declared and decided that the the Logos is of the very same nature as the Father, well, then why not the Holy Spirit? Now, why did it matter? I mean, with Jesus, there was a pressing theological issue. Why did it matter to uh, to personify and, and put the Holy Spirit in the Godhead as well? I don't know this, but I'm kind of guessing that there were Christians who had a kind of pneumatic Christianity. Perhaps they were adoptionists or came from adoptionism, where it was really the divine spirit that possessed Jesus, kind of like uh, uh, Stephen L. Davies talks about in Jesus the Healer. Uh, And uh, so that they thought that it wasn't so much the human Jesus, but the, the spirit 
kind of like some of the separationist Gnostics and adoptionists. Uh, and maybe it was due to their uh, advocacy that the spirit was included alongside the Logos, as if they weren't really the same thing. So that's what I think happened, uh, ecumenical compromise, trying to uh, give divine dignity to these hypostases uh, and yet not sacrificing monotheism. So it's, again, a retreat into ambiguity. And, of course, the way to put a halo over that word is to say it's the ambiguity is a divine mystery. Well, it sure is that. Seth Kelly says, Apologists often suggest that Jews had no concept of a dying and rising Messiah, and therefore the disciples would not have invented this about Jesus. That is, you know, people are going to rise from the dead, but only at the end of the age. They couldn't possibly have thought of, of somebody rising from the dead beforehand in a mundane, you know, ongoing history, right? Uh, so, But they did think it about Jesus, so how did they get that idea? Well, it must have happened. However, the New Testament tells us some Jews believe John the Baptist died and rose again and were claiming this while Jesus was still alive. Two places in Mark. Shouldn't this end the tired apologetic argument? You bet it should. I, I've said this in several uh, of my writings. Uh, N.T. Wright, George E. Ladd, other people say this. It's just so obviously silly. Uh, and uh, the the way, the only way I know of they try to slide out of this is to say, well, look, we know uh, it says uh, Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow of Nain, Lazarus, uh, the, the kids that uh, Elijah and Elisha raised. Oh, yeah, sure. The Bible says that there were resurrections of individuals, but these were just resuscitations in principle, no different than bringing back somebody on the operating table. What it claims about Jesus was that uh, he was glorified, like the end time resurrection had taken place uh, proleptically or ahead of time in his particular case. What does that mean? Well, he was uh, raised a natural body, and uh, I'm sorry, he was uh, he was uh, buried as a uh, natural body and uh, raised up in a spiritual body. And what is that supposed to mean? Well, Jesus became like the Martian Manhunter, if you're a DC fan, or the Vision, if you're a Marvel fan. Uh, that uh, he uh, was a superhero who could change his physical density at will, and fly up into the sky and all this kind of thing. Couldn't have done that before the resurrection. Uh, and uh, th that uh, Lazarus uh, couldn't teleport from place to place or walk through locked doors. No, no, no. Uh, Jesus had become Superman, basically. Uh, and uh, that hadn't happened and couldn't happen in their thinking before the end of the world. I beg to differ that John the Baptist passage, why is it that they think John has been raised from the dead? Well, it's a mistaken identity, right? They're really seeing Jesus, whom they, you know, they've never seen close up or anything. But they say, ah, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, he is a superhuman resurrected. So uh, the, their argument is just ridiculous, and it ought to be retired. But as long as suckers keep um, being gulled by it, they'll keep using it. Sorry to be cynical. Um, Charles Coletta, of the classic works 
righteousness dialectic, faith versus works, to what degree do you believe this argument represents a fairly advanced stage of early Christianity? Modern conventional historians, from John Dominic Crossan to rank-and-file seminarians, would have us believe this high-minded debate was taking place in the midst of serious uh, turbulent times, A.D. 40 through 60, when the Herodian client kings were losing or completely lost control and credibility in Judea, and the Romans were being openly antagonized, which was often met with their cruel and brutal response and reaction. With the Roman Hellenistic side of this dichotomy, or the Jamesian hardcore Judean side, have any use for the Pauline synthesis, considering each side would see it as a hindrance to the politico-religious consolidations they were aiming for, to say nothing of the tax collection and revenues that served as the material crux of the political dialectic? Is this a development that arose with Marcion when, as a response to him, and with uh, enough time elapsed, scholars could romanticize and modify major first-century figures of Palestine? Could this have been developed long after Marcion? I'm not saying that there could not have been a cosmopolitan movement that annexed the awesome parts of Judaism while dismissing circumcision, food purity laws, frequent bathing, sexual strictness, and active xenophobia during A.D. 40 through 60, but would the debate as articulated in Galatians and Corinthians be developed and advanced in the midst of violent antagonism, systematic purges and war, both against the Romans and against each other? Yeah, a uh, very good question. It seems to me there are uh, at least a couple of uh, very plausible Zitzen im Leben uh, contexts of origination for these for this debate. It seems to me it could very naturally have arisen from the uh, attempt of Gentiles, ex-pagans or Jewish sympathizers, but Gentiles to convert to Christianity. The the issue would would be, well, you say Jesus is a Jewish Messiah and the Bible is Jewish and all that. Do I have to convert to Judaism to be in the religion of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? And uh, there were people, uh, supposedly, like uh, James and others who said, well, yeah, of course you do. It's the word of God and all of that. Uh, you can hardly imagine the Messiah came to <laughs> overthrow the Torah. That's a last thing you would do, right? Uh, and uh, so they said, yeah, you, you do. And uh, then there were others, like represented by Paul, who said, look, th these people uh, needn't keep the ceremonial laws. It's a major reorientation uh, to take on a whole raft of culturally alien mores, a different uh, menus and uh, a schedule of holidays and all this stuff. Uh, look, what difference does that make? To Jews, it makes a lot of difference, and rightly so, because these ceremonial laws were always intended to put up a high wall between the Jewish community and non-Jewish communities. You didn't want assimilation going on because that's just going to dissolve Judaism. Uh, you want to have a wall that people are not going to readily climb over like a Trojan horse. Uh, I know it's a mixed metaphor. Uh, you, they get inside and they will bring their pagan ideas with them. Of course, that's what happened with Christianity. 
So you want to make it tough to get in. And uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, of course, there's a good reason for keeping the ceremonial works of the Torah if you're a Jew. But these people, these Greeks, Arabs, whatever, that want to convert to Jesus, they're not going to join the Jewish community. Nobody's asking them to. They just want to believe in Jesus as the Savior. Uh, I don't think they even cared about whether he was the Jewish Messiah. What difference would it make to them? Uh, that'd be like uh, taking sides in a succession dispute as to who's going to be the prince of Liechtenstein, right? Uh, and uh, so you're just making it pointlessly tougher for these poor people to embrace Christ. Don't do it. Well, you can easily see that would be a huge issue, much like the indigenization controversy and missiology, uh, that uh, you, you don't need to require that of them. Uh, Jewish Christians want to keep being Jews, of course. No problem there. But why force uh, Gentile converts to keep the Jewish customs? It's pointless. That's what a lot of the New Testament discussion seems to be about when it opposes faith to the works of the law, right? They're not talking about moral good deeds. They're talking about circumcision and kosher laws and so forth. So we can well imagine that came up pretty quickly once Jews, uh, once Jewish Christians started spreading Christianity among non-Jews. So that could come from that period. What about all the, the chaos? Would they have bothered with that? Well, yeah, James D.G. Dunn, if I remember correctly, makes a pretty good case for that. Look, especially because of these problems, uh, that uh, those Jews who were faithful to the Torah, I mean, look at... Uh, for uh, second and fourth Maccabees, especially the horrors of persecution visited upon faith, Torah observant faithful Jews, if that if there was a danger of that, and you were espousing Jewish fidelity to the Torah, you would really resent the hell out of anybody that said, "Ah, oh, the Torah it's really negligible." If you want to join the household of faith, uh, the biblical tradition, yeah, you don't have to keep kosher. Oh yeah, like hell. They would say, you're just cheapening this whole thing, like Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace. Uh, the, the Torah is important. We're standing for it, and you should too. What do you think you're doing? Uh, and so, yeah, this would have generated a lot of opposition, uh, And but it's a debate that would fit very well into both the missionary issue and the uh, the persecution issue. Okay, there are elements of it that seem to me to reflect a later Zitzim Laban too, though, uh, namely Marcionite and Gnostic utter repudiation of, of the Jewish religion. I don't mean condemning it necessarily, I just mean saying Christianity is a new and different thing that owes nothing to Judaism. Right, that's the Marcionite claim. Uh, and uh, th these people said, look, you're a Jew. The Old Testament is your book. It's got a lot of good stuff to say. Your God is real. He did create the world. He did give the law. But we're following Jesus, the son of a different God, hitherto unknown. So they didn't. They figured the, the Torah and the scriptures of Judaism are none of our business. Uh, we're doing a different thing. Uh, unfortunately, Catholicism mixes the two up and destroys the distinctiveness of, of Christianity. We're not doing that. Well, they said that the law came from a different God, not the Christian God, maybe even from angels, uh, the Simonians said, for instance. Um, and uh, 
so the law is just not our business, forget it. Uh, well, the Catholic reaction to that was, uh, no, 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 the Jewish God is the father of Jesus Christ. Christianity grows out of Judaism and holds on to its heritage of the Old Testament law, though, of course, they allegorized it so they didn't really have to keep it, but in name they kept it. And I think that's what we're hearing in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Now, don't go thinking that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, etc. And whoever thinks I did and tells people to let go of even the least commandments, well, he's, he's, his name is last in the kingdom of heaven. That sounds to me like an argument against Paulinism, uh, against Marcionism, that the scriptures, the law and the prophets were done away with by Jesus. Uh, that's uh, whoever wrote that part of Matthew is rejecting the Marcionite Gnostic view, which we already find in Galatians. It wasn't God who gave the law to Moses, it was angels. Because if it was just God, why would he need Moses as a mediator? And uh, so uh, I think some of the debate over the law has to do with the Old Testament and the Jewish heritage. So you have to look and see which uh, each of these passages seems concerned with, and uh, therefore where they likely came from. Um, Charles also says, have you heard about a gospel of Mark used as material for a proletariat or petty bourgeois mummy mask? I don't get the economic terms on there, but all of the news outlets reporting this are obviously not keen on the tubing in school, Brandon and Eisler or Eisenman and Price, but at least some good old gospel of Mark is in the news again, right? What are your thoughts? Um, Craig Evans, uh, um, apologist and conservative, he and I think Josh McDowell, God forbid, um, work with some people to get these old uh, mummy masks, I, I think of it as kind of paper mache in a way, uh, and uh, they carefully dismantle them uh, to look at the paper that uh, w was used to stiffen the, the masks, trying to see if possibly there were any gospel fragments in there. Now, you might think that's insane, but, but it isn't. Uh, we found parts of the Gospel of Thomas and other stuff as used as stuffing for stuffed crocodiles in Egyptian tombs. So it, it's not unreasonable to look for that kind of stuff. Well, they're doing it and, and they say, oh, we found a part of a copy of Mark, a few sentences uh, that uh, um, uh, must date to about 40 AD and that's going to throw the whole critical enterprise out. And they were saying the same thing about Jose O'Callaghan's discovery of a supposed fragment of Mark among the Dead Sea Scrolls back around 1976, which was just nonsense. And I suspect this is too. I don't know how you could possibly date such a thing. And uh, But yeah, I, I'm very suspicious about all these flash-in-the-pan discoveries. Of course, if there is a way to prove it, boy, that'd be great. I, I would love to be corrected. Uh, but I don't think uh, it's likely to happen here. Some people are saying, oh, it's an outrage that they're destroying these cultural artifacts. I don't know what to think about that. I mean, do you wish they hadn't have opened King Tut's tomb? Uh, 
Would it have been better to respect the wishes of people thousands of years dead? Or would it be better to understand their world better by looking at the relics buried with uh, Tutankhamun? Uh, I uh, I sort of understand the view, but I, I tend to think, uh, let's discover what we can. But I really don't care. So uh, it's... Uh, you know, there are many topics I just am not wasting the time on since it's not my decision to make. Um, uh, Peter Seller. assume it's not Peter Sellers. Uh, but, uh, um, see, uh, he says, I finished listening to episode so-and-so of the Bible Geek. You discussed which of the Pauline epistles were not written by Paul. Also, I remember hearing a podcast with you, Richard Carrier and David Fitzgerald, in which you discuss how we do not know who wrote the Gospels. I would like to ask the question from the other direction. What books in the Bible do we have a clear idea regarding their authorship? Uh, Peter, I think I can uh, answer that one pretty succinctly. None. Uh, there is not one in which there is a plausible identification of the author. Um, probably the best candidate, though I think this is not true either, would be part of the book of Nehemiah, and who cares, right? Uh, so I, I think virtually all of these things are wild, ancient scholarly guesswork. Well, speaking of wild scholarly guesswork, uh, that's another episode of The Bible Geek. Uh, I'll be seeing you pretty soon for another one, maybe tomorrow, if I can uh, uh, remember to do it in my uh, forgetful senility. But uh, great being with you today. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you soon. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn placed on the firing line. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus